The thing is about this book is it, it's written almost as a sort of B-movie horror. Uh, there are two things that happen while um, while he's working away in the garden, which I'm willing to bet are completely irrelevant and probably barely worth mentioning. One is there's a, a large bank of mist that's appeared across the lake. <laughs> sure, that's nothing to worry about. And the other thing is uh, he thinks about the recent government project that's been going on up there called the Arrowhead Project, which I'm sure I probably won't hear about again. Do you think when he writes them, Stephen King leans back in his chair and goes, <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special edition of Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And we've got a bit of a, a break at the moment because we're starting our Christmas run-up next week with a, a, a three-parter on Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. So for this week, we thought we'd go for a short story, a little shark cage, as we like to call them. And this is The Mist by Stephen King. Exactly. It's interesting because uh, this very morning that I'm recording, I'm looking out of the window and it's quite misty and foggy. (laughs) Coincidence? (laughs) Yeah, it is a coincidence. But anyway. It it is. It would be quite extraordinary if it was not. So uh, if you, uh, as ever, want to be reading along with us, so it's quite simple, this, um, just go away and read it. It's The Mist by Stephen King. It's a short story. We say short story. It was about 150 pages in the end. So, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I didn't really realise when I sat down to read it with only three hours remaining before doing the podcast. I was like, so I'd just have a little poodle through this short story. Nothing compared to uh, George R. R. Martin's A Storm of Swords. Oh, hang on a second. This is literally the longest single chunk of words I've ever read for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite meaty. Yeah. Um, So I think we better get, since we've got to get through 150 pages in the next hour and a half, we better get stuck into it. Crack into the mofo, shall we? Okay, so we start off with chapter, you can tell it's going to be a long short story when it's divided into chapters. Uh, Chapter one, the coming of the storm. We're introduced to the main characters, which are uh, this this guy called, uh, is he called Dan? I think he's called Dan. Oh, David. And uh, his wife and his, his his young son, he's only about five years old. Uh, we also get a mention of his, his arsehole neighbour Brent Norton, um, and these <laughs> was, there, was there ever a benevolent character called Brent Norton? <laughs> just it just, just sounds thought... like somebody who's going to steal from you. I just thought of David Brent from The Office. I know, actually, that's true. <laughs> David and Brent, and not one of them does a, a palpably awkward dance. Not once. I was disappointed. Yeah. Uh, so th- these guys live uh, in the sort of country- countryside in uh, in New England by a big lake, and there's this massive storm. There's, it seems that I think they have storms there quite a lot, but this really big one rolls in, and it's quite a uh, dramatic evening uh, as they sort of sh- shelter from the storm in the house. There's this one moment where uh, David imagines this picture window blowing in and. Uh, because his, his wife and kid are stood in front of it, so he grabs them and drags them down to the down to the cellar, which is not quite as sinister as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. It's quite a uh, it's quite a I don't know, a fairly dramatic introduction. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I, I liked it as a sort of. It really gives you a sense of time and place. Like, I haven't read actually any Stephen King before now. I read the book that he wrote about being a writer, 
but mm. I haven't read anything else of his. So kind of, I, I didn't really know what to make of his reputation because, you know, he's a horror writer and the rest of it. But actually, I was really impressed. The characterization and the sort of sense of place here was amazing. I was like, oh, yeah, there, there's a lake. And even though I've never been to rural New England, I was looking at it. I was like, oh, yeah, I can just imagine this. I can really see the setting in front of my eyes. Hmm. Yeah, he, 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 that's what he's, he's very good at, Stephen King. He, he can make things seem... Uh, he, he captures reality quite well, which mm. means he can, when he just drops this supernatural stuff in, it doesn't feel quite as ridiculous as it could do in other books. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. So, so we get to After the Storm, which is chapter two, and um, every, there's, there's a massive trees come crashing through their bed, uh, their living room window, so that's going to have to be dealt with. Uh, there's <laughs> This guy, Brent Norton's tree next door, which he ref- continuously refused to cut down, uh, has now landed on their boathouse, <laughs> which they're not very happy about. There's a, lot of down- there's a lot of downed power lines everywhere as well. And I loved how excited his son is. He keeps running around seeing all this destruction. And uh, there's this one that he runs over to and goes, Mum, Mum, you've got to look at this. Jesus Christ! And <laughs> <His mom goes laughs> just runs off again. <laughs> William! <laughs> I absolutely loved that. Just, just this this kid who's so overwhelmed by all this new stuff that he's seeing doesn't even care that he's just sworn. This is amazing. Um, I tell I tell you what, actually, this whole the because we get the first little bit of tension here where there's these uh, broken power lines that have come down. They're still live and they're kind of you know mm. they're like sizzling in the in the grass. And um, and uh, like there's nothing you can do about that. Obviously, just wait for the electricity company to kind of come cut them off yeah. um but uh uh but he, he like stephen king does this and then has this little billy character running around all over the place and kind of the situation hasn't been dealt with but the kid's still running around and i mm. knew that that this that you know a kid who gets horribly shocked by electric cables wasn't what this story was about and yet i'm still a bit i'm already being yanked around i'm like oh steve <laughs> oh yeah it's like he's doing it for fun this is just stephen king limbering up Imagine if there were live cables lying on the ground and an excitable five-year-old running around. Imagine if you were experiencing this through the eyes of his father. Imagine. <laughs> yes. Well, um, so we get this sort of fairly generic family scene. Dad starts working away at some of these problems in the garden, cracking a few beers as he goes. Um, <laughs> He's yeah. not shy about it, is he? Did you, were you He's struck not. by exactly how heavily everybody in this story drinks? <laughs> yeah, especially I, I was struck by not only that, but how willing they are they are like, just to jump in cars as and when yeah. as well. The situation yeah, arises that blew my mind, which I think tells tells you what kind of towns we mm. grew up in, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where where it's not where if you've been drinking, fucking walk it, get the bus, call a taxi. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, definitely. Like, I'll go home in your car. How many have you had? Twelve. Oh, not but nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are two things that happen while um, while he's working away in the garden, which I, I'm willing to bet are completely irrelevant and probably barely worth mentioning. One is there's a, a large bank of mist that's appeared across the lake. Uh, <laughs> sure, that's nothing to do, you know, nothing to worry about. Oh, absolutely, uh, <laughs> the name. <laughs> and the other thing is, uh, he thinks about the recent government project that's been going on up there called the Arrowhead Project, which I'm sure I probably won't hear about again. <laughs> <laughs> the Arrowhead Project, or as we might decide to call it, Area 52. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he, he bumps into this guy called Brent Norton, uh, his neighbour, whose tree has fallen on his uh, on his uh, on his boat house. It it also. Uh, 
it turns out that they've had some kind of long-running legal dispute, which which the uh, which the main character won. Uh, so there's not a lot of love lost there. But actually, this guy comes over. He's having a bit of a rough time, Brent Norton. He's lost his wife last his, uh, last year. Uh, he's looking a bit worse for wear. And the first thing he says actually is is an apology. And uh, yeah, David yeah. almost uh, starts to like him, or you know, until he, he sees him leching on his wife <laughs> and decides he doesn't <laughs> like him anymore. Uh, Understandably, there, right? I think you're within your rights there. If somebody's, if somebody's, you know, kind of taking you to court and had a long, horrible legal battle, and then comes over to apologise and then just basically goes, "Hello, darling." Yeah, you know, mi- fair, mixed to, mixed messages of friendship there. I think. <laughs> to be fair to Brent, he doesn't actually like go over and start putting some moves on her anything. He just looks at her in a kind of lechy way, mm, uh, which is still, well, you know, yeah, which is st- <laughs> I, that's not like a. It, I think it's easy sometimes for guys to assume that that sort of thing isn't seen, but it's like, come on, it's extremely yeah. clear what you're like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, uh, after that, Brent, Brenton. And uh, David and and his, his his kid go into town. They need to go and get a few supplies from the supermarkets. And I think, uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly, Brent's getting some beer because uh, <laughs> he's the only one who hasn't started drinking yet, with the exception of uh, his son. <laughs> do, you, do you sense do you sense a small amount of jealousy on Brent's part? Everybody else is just kind of ten in the morning cleaning up wood with chainsaws, and they're all on the beers. Yeah, and and he's like, I should be on the beers. I'm gonna get some beer. <laughs> <laughs> he's no beer. His Ferrari's been crushed by a tree. <laughs> His chainsaw won't work. He's having a bad morning. No yeah, wonder he's looking a bit unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I tell you what. Did you did the the um? Did you notice the the line at the end of chapter two as well, where um where uh, you know um what's his name David uh mm. ex- like describes what his wife was doing just as he was driving away, and then says mm. that was the last time I ever saw her alive. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I, again, Stephen King's been doing this for so long that you're like, all right, fair enough. Like you've earned the right to deploy that thunderous cliche. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is about this book, I suppose, uh, about this story, is it, it's written almost as a sort of B movie horror, you know, B yeah. horror, B movie. So it's yeah. it yeah. it's supposed to be a bit. I mean, it's all quite. It, it, I mean, it's in in its, in its uh, essentially, it's a very very simple well-worn tale which is normal people knocking about and then this something happens and everyone goes crazy and gets stuck somewhere yeah um yeah but yeah yeah there, there are these little b-movie touches just like that i was i was going to mention it's uh <laughs> that was the last time i saw and so you immediately know oh do you think when he writes him stephen king leans back in his chair and goes <laughs> 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 I think absolutely, especially at the end, or the death of a major character. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So they get to this supermarket. It's absolutely heaving. It's like Black Friday. There's uh, people running around <laughs> buying loads of stuff because there's been a storm. So what everybody immediately does when that happens is just stock up, um, which yeah, is kind of yeah, like... Yeah, because boom. of the thing that's just happened. Exactly, yeah, I was going to say. It's just about to happen. <laughs> it's like closing the barn door after the horse has bolted, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah, he's the, he's the very definition. We should even call that panic buying <laughs> after the storm. Well done. Well done indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, as, you know, that is what happens, I suppose. Uh, yeah. There's this there's this woman there uh, called Mrs. Carmody, uh, and she's wearing quite possibly the greatest outfit in the whole story, <laughs> a canary yellow pantsuit. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, I know that in American English, pantsuit can mean something quite formal. Um, but in my head for the whole way through this story, I just saw her in like a tracksuit, like a sort of like bright yellow, cheap velour kind of zip up kind of. <laughs> kind of tracksuit and I just thought that was absolutely priceless the idea of this well this extremely questionable character as it turns out being dressed up like somebody who's just can't even be asked to get dressed to go down the shop sort of thing yeah I imagined her in a onesie like with canaries on it <laughs> <laughs> just skip over the word yellow and it's an actual canary suit she's walking around dressed as a bird <laughs> that would have been amazing <laughs> absolutely incredible and at points during the story if you ever need to discredit this woman people just turn around and go she's dressed as a fucking canary is nobody else seeing this is nobody else seeing that she's dressed as a canary <laughs> it's zombie penguin all over again <laughs> <laughs> i'd forgotten about that that was amazing all right yeah uh, we, we get this well, obviously we had this this is the last time i saw my wife and he's also um we sort of snap back to the present, uh, sorry, back to the, the the point of the story which he's talking about, and he, he's talking about how he he was worried about his wife. He couldn't really think of why. And again, it's this just it's just this artificially building the tension up a bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we move on to the coming of the mist, chapter three, and uh, he's queuing, they're queuing for the till, massive queue because all the computers aren't working, so they want to use calculators to to put all the stuff through. It's one of those classic, just horrible shopping experiences yeah uh and then it starts off in the you know some police sirens go flying past this teenager comes running into the shop saying the, the mist's coming in you got to look at it it's brilliant and runs out again and uh mrs carmody who um it turns out is the <clears throat> sort of resident doom crier and all right fruitcake yeah yeah uh starts shouting is death out there <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the idea that she's been like on a hair trigger for it. You know, oh, yeah, like this is yeah, you know, definitely. slightly slightly unusual weather has appeared at the edge of town. It's death out there, I tell you, death, <laughs> death. She squawked. And I would yeah. I just I mean it would have made a shit story, but I'd love it if if the next sentence was a stiff breeze whipped up, blowing the mist backwards. Everybody turned to Mrs. Carmody, who was suddenly studying the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it could and, have been but, death. Could have been death. Actually, just weather. Unfortunately, it turns out Mrs. Carmody may well be right because immediately after that, a man runs in with a, a bloody nose and he starts mm. shouting about something in the fog and it got mm. one of his friends. Mm. And that, that creates his panic. And I thought this was really well written because he mm. writes how the group slowly, slowly starts to panic. But it isn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It's not like he runs in with this bloody nose, and suddenly everyone starts screaming. And he's fucking hell! He's got a bloody nose. Yeah, Something no untoward mistake. is up here, and no mistake. Yeah, yeah. It's not like so, the start of a brawl scene in like a cheap American comedy film from the eighties, where like one person stands up and goes, "Hey!" and then everybody just starts punching each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it would, yeah, it would have been a bit cheap if this guy just everyone's just completely calm. This guy runs in with what is effectively a bloody nose. Uh, just shouting a couple of things and suddenly everyone just starts screaming and losing the shit. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, this panic is people start firstly looking, like moving towards the window to have a better look and then a few people run out into the fog and then it sort of, 
it kind of feeds on itself this kind of energy and people yeah. start then a few people start screaming and a few people start laughing because like kind of they're feeling they're going a bit yeah. crazy yeah. and uh, they don't really know how to deal with the situation and quite a large group of people run out into the fog mm. uh and then you know i think it i think it's it's brent or it's it's david who says you know maybe we, we shouldn't be running out there mm. uh and then there's this massive thud and it's almost like an earthquake it's this an enormous um yeah. and the whole the whole supermarket shakes on its on its foundations and that sort of suddenly makes everybody realize this is yeah. this might be a bit serious yeah. and then this <laughs> the woman who's shouting death um is is sh- is shoved by this teenager and is told to shut up and then this and, and then so everybody's that then we, we sort of reach this point where the people who are still in the supermarket are the ones who are going to stay there until the f- something else happens yeah. apart from this one woman who says she's left her two young kids at home yeah. so she's got to get back and will anybody sort of help her get back and nobody yeah. will yeah. and they all sort of just look at the ground and shuffle their feet a bit yeah I, I really I this whole sequence like where 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 shit starts to go off I actually found I, I just thought it was extraordinarily well written because it was mm. it knows exactly how much juice to put into the kind of the individual kind of stages towards things falling apart Inst- mm-hmm. you know a bad writer here I think would go uh, and then shit crashed through the window and then something else fucked up happened and it was amazing because I love really fucked up stuff you know Garth Marenghi would have written it like that um <laughs> Whereas, uh, whereas <laughs> it looked down at his bloody nose, blood, blood, <laughs> blood. <laughs> uh, by the way, anybody listening to this, if you haven't watched Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, I urge you to go and get a copy and watch it. It's absolutely superb parody of bad horror, which this isn't, by the way. Yeah, um, and it's even more of an achievement that it isn't bad horror, precisely because, like you say, this is just a B movie. This is a B movie mm. script, but he he just like he pitches it absolutely perfectly, so you're bought into it, even as these preposterous things start to happen. You know, mm. um, yeah. and 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 that happens because of these really realistic sort of character moments. How it kind of just slowly goes to shit. You know, there's the moment where the woman really panics and kind of exposes everybody else's panic. And mm. everybody in the room just kind of looks down. And why wouldn't they go out into the mist? Who cares about the mist, right? In a rational world. But already by that point, people are kind of, their fears have crept up on them to the extent that they're changing the way they act. But yeah. one of the great things about the next set of sequences in the store is that it, it shows really clearly how nobody really wants to confront the fear that they are that they have taken for real. You know, mm. they, they believe it's happening, but they don't want to so they don't talk like it is and so there's as well as everything else there's this enormous kind of social embarrassment that comes out of grown people standing around and being like is this really a horror movie that i found myself in because i thought i was just going to the shops sorry just coughing that's right um yeah yeah no it's crazy so what happens now is uh, this this woman walks out on her own into the mist and disappears and everybody feels and she was never seen again Exactly. That, by um, the way, that's the line from this one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was never seen again. Um, <laughs> we go into the storage area. Well, this, uh, the next chapter is called "In the Storage Area," and David takes his son to the back of the store because, obviously, understandably, the five-year-old is a bit upset by all this recent change of events. 
So he um, mm. he, ca- he calms him down, and then he realizes that the the generator is um is making a funny noise like in the back of the store. So he decides mm. to go and switch it off before uh, it gets any worse. Mm. And he goes and does that, and he hears some. It's called some nice. It's called slithery scraping outside. Um, sort of, sort of, almost like something's like running across the roller shutter door. Yeah, uh, and it seems like, <clears throat> and it seems like the exhaust is plugged. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, no. Sorry, that, that they find that out later on. So he goes back out and says there's a problem with the generator, and then him and a couple of guys go into the back again to see what's wrong with it. Mm. And when they try starting it up again, the, ex- the sort of the exhaust fumes come flooding in. So it's obvious that something's something's plugging up the exhaust outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this this bag boy called Norm. Now, whenever there's a bag boy called Norm, they're never very long for this world in these horror stories. <laughs> and and he's like, he's this teenager, and he's all like, oh, you know what? Just open the open the back. I'll I'll run out and and unplug it, and then run back in again. I, he doesn't say it in that reasonable a tone of voice, though, does he? He's like, kind of, <laughs> you fucking pussies. Open that back door. I'll run out there. I'll sort it out. I'll run back in. You fucking old men. Bosh, <laughs> yeah. motherfuckers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I love what that moment becomes because okay right cocky idiotic bag boy who isn't even oh no he is named sorry but he's referred to in the character title as the bag boy and at that point you're, you might as well call him you might as well call him the the plot fodder the sacrificial lamb um, runs like he's he's already for it um and that's a type that you've heard a hundred times you know the over cocky youngster but then mm-hmm. what i love is these two dudes next to him saying yeah you should go and do it you should go and i'm quite violently insisting that he should go and do it and that if anybody yeah. disagrees then they are then they like deserve violence in a way and mm. um and it's really great the way it pulls out that thing of like people in conditions of great stress kind of the the argument he's making is that people in conditions of great stress revert to the kind of you know they'll they'll angrily defend things they don't really understand but have decided you know you kind of cling mm, to your own yeah. will as a kind of life raft in a way that's probably not terribly helpful yeah and i thought it was interesting that the the assistant manager who's here as well called ollie he's mm. saying um he says you know we, we you don't you know we don't really need the generator on anyway but you know the stuff's going to keep for ages uh, all the yeah. food in the shop anyway yeah. And uh, David makes the point that it, to almost just to the reader that it's uh, it, it, it's it doesn't matter that it isn't a problem anymore. It's that these guys have identified it as a problem, and it's one thing yeah. that they think they can fix, so they're yeah. going to fix it to make yeah. it all feel better. It's all about control, isn't it? It's mm. this desire to to be well. I don't know what's going on with this mist, and lots of people have disappeared, and there's this mental old woman dressed as a canary out front. Preaching doom, <laughs> squawking, <laughs> squawking doom, even, and then and and but here there is a blocked exhaust pipe, and I think I've just about got it in me to see that that could be fixed. But mm. I, so I'm going to send an 18 year old outside to do it because fuck that noise. <laughs> yeah. So they open up the uh, the door, the roller shutter door, and this lad goes out and immediately is grabbed by these tentacles. It's like something from it came from Planet X, isn't it? It's yeah, uh, these yeah, massive yeah. tentacles sort of wrap him up and drag him out of the door. Yeah. And uh and they try and try and save him, but mm. in the end they sort of there's this 
really uh, terrible moment for David where he's got to let him go because these other mm. tentacles are coming in as well. Yeah. And in the end, oh, he gets dragged out. The tentacles come in and start grabbing stuff and bursting, you know, just whatever they land on, they try to eat. Yeah. And they manage to fend it off by shutting the roller shutter door. On it. On it, yeah. <laughs> Which is, it off. It's, it's a good job that it's, this is 30 years ago and it's not a health and safety approved <laughs> probably shut a door. <laughs> that would be amazing, <laughs> Which when it, it? <laughs> whenever it encounters any kind of resistance, it just chops right it through rather than turning right right off. Instead of stopping it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> David triumphantly pressed the button. The door scythed down. The moment it brushed the top of the horrible otherworldly tentacle, it stopped with a whine and a self-satisfied beep. Well, yeah. fuck, he said. <laughs> Yeah, so it is. He's very lucky that it does come down. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it just slices right through the one tentacle that's still inside. Oh, and, uh, the description of these tentacles as well, Matt. Oh, yeah. oh my word! So they are sort of like octopus tentacles, but some of them are described as being like five foot wide. Like he looks mm. outside and almost casually says, "And some of them were five or six foot thick." And I'm like, "Thick? Five or six <laughs> foot? Thick? Where are they coming from? How many of them are in your field of view? They're all the size of like." <laughs> like tanks and they're all coming for you (laughs) and it describes the sort of suckers as all moving like independent hungry mouths and like and there are like clearly Stephen King loves a monster of the week loves (laughs) a monster of the week and just goes for it and um, and he I have to say the descriptions of them are extremely disquieting (laughs) oh yeah and I think the the terrible thing is as well when this poor lad's got caught by the tents because he what uh David says is that he sees them eating him while while it's so the tentacles sort of grab you and then start eating you. So all this blood's running. Oh, it's, it's grim. It is. Anyway. It is grim. But it's also a good example of how again the the, the horror just gets ratcheted up that notch because mm. you know somebody's got got grabbed by a tentacle. So you're thinking, all right, he's got grabbed by a tentacle. That's pretty bad. Probably want to chop that tentacle off, or. Uh, or, you know, he, whatever's happening, he's going to be dragged in towards something before he really gets eaten. And then he starts getting eaten by the tentacle itself. And you're like, oh, fuck, that's that's yeah. cold, monster bitch. What are you doing there? <laughs> yeah. Now, um, once, once, they, once they're safe again, uh, all but obviously poor old Norm, the bag boy, uh, David's furious and he punches uh, one of the two guys who were egging the lad on, the guy, mm. a guy called Myron. And he probably would have just kept punching him until he gets dragged off, mm. and uh, and it's again, it's probably it's his way of dealing with that, isn't it? With that yeah. sudden trauma. Yeah, and I tell you, there is something really interesting in this. One of the reasons I really liked David as a character is that he's he's like it makes sense that he kind of quite dispassionately relates what happens but also kind of explains what he does and kind of lets you witness it instead of saying i was so angry you know Mm. he actually he just you know i kept on punching him and punching him and punching him and describes it from his viewpoint and it's really good because he's clearly got this sense of like moral ang like uh outrage he's like Mm. you know how dare you have done this and and you know and i think he almost says you're gonna go back in there and pretend you didn't do anything aren't you you know you're gonna you sent him to die it's your fault Mm. And he has this instinctive sense that violence is what's necessary to kind of atone for that and make it right. Um, and there's this whole thing running throughout throughout this whole story about kind of um, like atonement in the face of horror. Um, mm-hmm. And and David's this really interesting voice. Well, on the one hand, you sympathize with him. And on the other hand, um, 
on the other hand, you're like kind of no, that's fucked up. Mm-hmm. But he he kind of makes you complicit in that whole thing. He makes you feel it. Um, yeah. Certainly later on in the story, there's some things that he does where you're like kind of, oh, no, but I mean I understand how you got there, but no, I don't agree with that, and yet I'm glad you did it. You know, and it's weird, but yeah. Yeah. Now they they, they return to the to the store and. They they all sort of agree that they're going to need to tell everybody what's happened because mm. people need to understand just how dangerous it is to go out of the shop now. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they they're trying to work out what to do, and while they're thinking about that, they they realise as well, um, you know, they're thinking, oh, we should be safe inside because you know the tentacles can't get through that massive um, roller shutter door, and then they realise that sort of oh shit moment where they think that they've got this massive plate glass window at the front of the store. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I probably would have thought of that earlier. Oh, we've got a metal door out the back, but it's closed, so that's our, that's our only vulnerability closed up. Is it? Yeah. Is it? <laughs> like, if you had to choose a place to barricade yourself, a, a supermarket wouldn't be it, would it? No, exactly. So they've got... Um, They've got a, they've got a, they've got two major problems then here. First is getting people to believe just what's going on, and two is is trying to fix this window, which is is a weak point. The first one, uh, they decide that uh, David decides that it's probably best to get Brent Norton on side first because for all these faults, this guy is a lawyer and he looks quite sort of stately, and <laughs> he, he just thinks he's the kind of person that people will believe if he says something um, that sounds a bit ridiculous. So he, he texts Brent to one side and says, you know, this is what's happened. And Brent just will not believe it. He yeah. he uh, he said he accused he basically at first says, Oh, you all probably had some kind of group hypnosis or some kind of yeah, group yeah. shared experience. And then um once once it moves on, he he accuses them all of just trying to play a trick on the out of towner because he's the yeah. only one who isn't there all to, all year round. Yeah. And it's just I mean, we see this developing through the next couple of chapters, but it's just this refusal to believe what's going on, isn't it, here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, again, I was really impressed with how convincingly this was written, where he's being totally illogical in a way that makes complete sense, where mm. you see him and you see the decision that he's making, and he like ends up at this extreme of self delusion and self-deception where he's almost Mm -hmm. changing the reality of the universe as he experiences it but he's doing it because he's again because he's so desperate for control Mm. yeah so well this argument with brent gets to the stage where uh david says oh so so if nothing's out there you won't mind going out into the fog then and he actually drags him to the door to throw him out into the to threaten to throw him out into the fog yeah and at that point ollie shouts you know this is getting a bit out of hand yeah. And Mrs. Carmody again starts banging on about death, and now she, death, she's entr- death. <laughs> she's mixing in this sort of hokey, like sort of a religious preacher aspect of it as well, isn't it? This sort yeah. of blood and thunder, uh, and starts quoting bits of revelations and things like that. Well, and sort of, but from a, a, a kind of folk memory thing of revelation, right? Like, yeah, uh, this is yeah. this is the old school power of the apocalyptic story, which isn't so much like. It's, it's 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 based on the ghost stories that people tell to one another, you know, mm-hmm. with some of this language at the bottom of it. Um, and she's 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 the she's the town 
ghost story teller really isn't she yeah yeah um and but she's very almost i mean to use a certain word almost possessed of the of the stories you know she seems to be so in love with them that she's kind of she throughout this seems to be absolutely fucking loving the fact that she's stuck (laughs) with a captive audience inside a place where eldritch horrors from the beyond are scratching at the glass she's like oh (laughs) what a great sunday this is what i was hoping for (laughs) yeah yeah she's the only she's the only character who who grows during this really isn't she yeah yeah i I suppose you could say in a a certain extent ollie and uh and david do as well but mm-hmm. she just thrives off this. She really yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, the, the way they convince everybody that some that stuff is out there in the end is they they get sort of Brent Norton won't play ball, so they get this guy called Bud Brown, who's the manager of the store, and up to now his his only real concern has been people stealing things and and drinking beer in the aisle. Um, he goes in and sees the tentacle and believes. And comes out and he says possibly the greatest understatement of the whole book where he says, people, it appears we have a problem of some magnitude here. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that just wonderful? Uh, Guys, guys, there's a a tiny problem. Uh, Weirdly enough, um, but but there's there's definitely a a slight hiccup. I, I thought this this seemed quite like stereotypically British. I imagined him to be quite British. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's his name. Uh, everybody, I'm terribly sorry, but uh, it, would, it would appear we have the a, a, a very very small uh, 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 road bump. <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or it's a classic American action hero sort of response, like mm. where like. Loads and loads of monsters come up, come over the horizon, <laughs> and I was expecting a quiet day. As <laughs> <laughs> he, he flicks oh. away the cigarette, yes, yeah, like <laughs> I guess then we have a small problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're on to uh, chapter six is a further discussion and uh, what happened to the flat Earth Society. Um, <laughs> so, not uh, Brent Norton starts putting his case forward for logic and for the fact that, you know, this kind of stuff can't happen. And he argues in a very clear and, you know, well-trained way. And he gets a few people to believe him and they almost form a, a, a faction in the in the group now. Mm. So you've, you've got almost three factions, if you can call Mrs. Carmody, just sitting on her own a faction. There's her. There's, she certainly seems to think she is one. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the Brent Norton team called who are casually referred to as the flat earthers um by david <laughs> and then there's sort of david and and ollie who are trying to get the uh get the supermarket fortified uh carmody starts going on about she, she, she's now moved on to shouting about blood sacrifice to appease the angry gods that have brought this down upon the tome it's a bit and, tenuous isn't it He's, <laughs> shit's got real how fucked up do you have to be for it to go from hey shit's got real we should kill somebody. That will calm <laughs> this whole situation right the fuck out. All's going to be all right, everybody. Yeah. Well, that, that ends are a slap from uh, from one of the other people in the supermarket. Uh, so people aren't, A, aren't, aren't taking any of this crap on board from her, and mm. B, aren't afraid of physically shutting her up, which has mm. happened twice now, and I think happens again um, fairly soon. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Again, that's quite interesting how, and it's probably like you said, how 
people jump very quickly to physically violently defending uh, mm. their point of view when it gets when things get like this. Uh, they work up a, a barricade for the window uh, by uh, <laughs> this guy called Dan uh, says that he's seen all these sacks of fertilizer at the back of the store, so why not sort of use them to barricade the window, which they they do. Mm. This guy this guy is called Dan Miller, mm. which is. Um, if you've seen the British TV comedy series The Thick of It, it's the name of a character in that. Is the is the sort of slick prime minister who comes in towards the end. That's amazing. So I, I just imagined him in this thing. <laughs> That's it, incredible. Uh, but yeah, it's Dan Miller. Hi um, everybody. It, Hi Dan. I just now. Oh fuck. I'm really glad you didn't tell me that before I read it because now all I can see that character as being is like Tony Blair, <laughs> and that's really funny. <laughs> Yeah, so Dan says uh, we should do that. They, they organise what other sort of weapons they have as well, and it turns out that they've got one gun between them, uh, called, uh, which belongs to this woman called Amanda, mm. and, uh, and that's given to Ollie because he, uh, the assistant Cause, manager, because he's, he's, he's totally hammered. <laughs> yeah, he's had a few things. I, I, there were two little beautiful moments of a sort of. I know America is not its stereotype, but these were the one moment which really defied the stereotype and one moment which really confirmed it. On the one hand, out of 70 people, only one person's got a gun. And I was like, oh, fair play. Well done there. Yeah. Excellent work. <laughs> Don't need to bring a gun when you go shopping. If you do, move house. Um, but then, what, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, if this happened in Texas, it would have been a different yeah. story, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would have been. It would have it just been like, let's play. <laughs> <laughs> um, it could have been like Tremors which is a great story that would have been fantastic um, uh, but the, and the second the second thing that happens though is that when there is a gun somebody like who can fire a gun and it's the piss head at the back that goes I can do it I'm pretty good at firing shooting give me that give me the bullets as well that, what, what, what do you mean you'll wait a bit before you give me the bullets fuck off I'm fine <laughs> The funny thing is that there are these other two guys who've had a lot to drink. Um, the two guys who sent the poor bag boy outside, and they're just mm. absolutely wrecked and just almost passed out by this stage. Mm. And uh, it's funny because Ollie's obviously drinking heavily throughout this, but he says to uh, David a bit later on, I, "You know, I, I've been trying to get drunk, but I can't even feel it. It's just, and I suppose it's just some when some. I've heard about this before as well. When you get a massive jump of adrenaline in your body." that mm. you can sort of still function fairly well when yeah. otherwise you wouldn't. Um, yeah, and that seems to That's quite a yeah. good evolutionary little piece of thing, isn't it? <laughs> We're so well evolved as, uh, as drunkards that the fight or flight instinct overwhelms the fact that we might be dribbling drunk. <laughs> Thanks, Mother Nature. <laughs> yeah, so they, they stack up these fertilizer bags against the windows to create a barricade. They have these mops which they've got, and they stick them in lighter fluid, so they've got some kind of torches to defend themselves with as well. Mm. And the thing is, David looks at it all and thinks, yeah, it's it's useful to make everyone feel a bit better and a bit safer, but practically, considering you've got tentacles five feet thick out there, if they want to come in, they're, they're going to come in. <laughs> so... <clears throat> So yes. you immediately get this feeling that this is a it's not a real safe haven, it's a temporary one, but it's not in, it's not impregnable. Mm. Um <clears throat> there's this we introduced this woman called Hattie Hattie Terman, who's uh mm. 
uh, the uh, d- d- uh, Billy's old babysitter, who is conveniently in the store, which is good because that means she can look after him and we don't have to have this kid tagging along all the time when dangerous stuff's happening. <laughs> did, did you notice that? I really love... All right. Oh, shit, we've got a kid. That was great for all the emotional build-up, but now he's in the shop. What the fuck are we going to do? I'll tell you what, I'll have him sleep for six hours in the middle of the day for no good reason, but probably something to do with supernatural kind of portentousness, and then I'll put a babysitter in the shop. But... <laughs> yeah, fixed. But uh, I love how she's... Uh, described as having these classic glasses, which you never see on anyone anyone under the age of sort of sixty, which are these <laughs> glasses with a chain on around your neck. I, do, I love <laughs> that line. I love that. I think it, he says, "I think it might actually be illegal for anybody other than middle-aged women to wear that." It's like, yes, <laughs> which is great because uh, in this thirty-year period between it being written and now, that is still the same. There's loads of stuff that only old people used to wear, which has become sort of fashionable for younger people again because it goes in cycles but not yeah. the not the glasses with James not the glasses. On. he has tapped into something quite constant there hasn't he <laughs> yeah that is enduring <laughs> so uh so so Brent Norton this is the last we see of him in this chapter because he is convinced that well he's convinced himself or he what he's he's convinced himself that he's convinced himself that the, uh, there's nothing out there and it's all a big practical joke and it's just all people's imaginations and he's convinced a load of other uh, at first I think it's about eight people that uh, that he's right and when David tries to reason with him he says uh, Brent says you're not going to turn my people against me and he just that's the point where David realises that this guy's gone over the edge a bit and he's talking about yeah. his people and your people and all this. Well, I think this is interesting. I mean, it was it was I think it's realistic as the way that people kind of process this. People do kind of tribe up and mm. that becomes like a kind of driver of the plot later on in the story. Um uh but also the fact that somebody like this guy kind of will reach for authority over other people even when he's totally insane even when it's the least plausible thing in the world he will claim Mm. it and people will go along with it you know there's Mm. this huge disconnect between the you know the kind of person who will generally stand up and say hey everybody follow me i'm the dogs and the fact that they get away with it far more often than than there's any reason for them to Really interesting little dynamic in this story. I really loved it. Yeah, so so he says, you know, we're going out there and we'll send help. And David get, has this uh, washing line and he says, well, one of you tie this around you and then we'll know how far you've got. <laughs> and he's, he, he's, he's, using it part, he's using it partly just to find out and partly as just one final tool to try and stop them going out and say, look, yeah. this is how seriously we believe it. We don't think you're going to get 500 yards. Yeah. Oh, I, worse than that, 300 feet, isn't it? And you're yeah, like yeah. a really, really good at making like the kind of claustrophobia of it real, you know, just when it could have become very kind of inward looking somebody goes out into the fog and reiterates the fact that there's something out there um and it's 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 some scary shit like when this came out did you look did you like me look at it and go oh ooh, that's not gonna go well like <laughs> yeah it's it's too good a plot device not to have it come back in some horrifying state of disrepair yeah and that is exactly what happens so brent won't take the uh take the rope but uh this other guy who's going out with him will um, some faceless guy in a it looks quite it looks like he can handle himself yeah and uh and they head out 
and it's okay for most of the the rope being fed out mm. and then they get so far away and then the screams and running and, and the rope gets sort of <laughs> yanked around and then <clears throat> it goes limp they drag it back in and of course the last sort of few last couple of meters of it are just covered in covered in blood yeah and oh. that's the end of the flat earth society <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's it's a moment where you kind of saw it coming but it's still like uh, oh oh yeah um but as you say the kind of if there is a weakness of this kind of story it's that when you kind of recount a moment like this you can quite easily slump into kind of with the running and the killing and the screaming and the blood <laughs> like yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of that's kind of what it is right but it, it does quite well at keeping on the sort of scary side of that line rather than mm. rather than the kind of lame side of that line yeah so moving to chapter 7 which is the first night and uh this is the, this is one good thing about about this situation there aren't many, but one is that uh, the, the the resident cook, the the, or the the butcher, has fired up the barbecue at the back of the uh, back of the store, and he's just sticking all the meats on it, and it's a selection of meats. It's a massive barbecue, and you got you got your beers, you got your meats, and it's just you know actually quite a, a moment which they can just cheer themselves up a little bit and yeah. uh, just not think about the greater problems that are going but- on. But almost nobody does. Like, this guy no. just keeps cooking meat and only two or three people take it away. Carmody, yeah. she's loving it. She's got this massive <laughs> pile of bones like some sort of horrendous carrion bird. Yeah, I reckon, I reckon, I reckon <laughs> she loves a chicken, chicken wing. <laughs> she loves a chicken wing. That's amazing. <laughs> she's just piled them up. She's just <laughs> surrounded by these <laughs> bones. Just flies over to the corner of the room, hunches over them. Little little cape from a canary outfit over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and Ollie's one of the uh, people on watch now because uh, they posted sentries to watch the mist and make sure nothing, you know, starts attacking. And um, Ollie says to David that you know there are things moving around out there. You see uh, shadows in the mist, like getting bigger and then going further away, mm. uh, which again is. Is very very creepy, and no and this kidding. is when we, yeah, this is when we get a sight of sort of our second creature from the mist because these weird sort of little bug things start landing on the glass, mm. um, which are sort of they're like giant, sort of they're like giant kind of like giant mosquitoes but but sort of with a twist. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's call them giant mosquitoes with a twist. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. I. I I, I quite liked this, even though, like, they were... Whenever an actual monster is presented to me, I'm a bit like... I think every author knows they kind of lose when they show the monster, because then everybody yeah. can kind of be like, uh, was it... Was it really? Yeah. Uh, monsters. Yeah. And, yeah. um... Uh, but but this, this still kind of... This still played for me. Um, mm. uh, and I particularly... I particularly liked the way that, like... Stephen King, because so chapter three, I think, is is like is called Inside the Mini Mart or something. Chapter mm. four, perhaps. Anyway, quite early on, I read a chapter title and I was like, "Oh, is this going to be a story where we're stuck inside a fucking shop until everybody gets killed?" Like at that <laughs> point, I was like, "Oh, come on! What kind of a plot are you going to get out of this?" Yeah, there was horrible tension, uh, just like Lord of the Flies, <laughs> only with 
only with bratwurst in jars and cheap natural <laughs> light beer. Like I, I just it just stretched ahead of me. And of course, Stephen King's much smarter than that. Doesn't give us that story. And one of the ways in which he kind of ups the ante is by actually presenting us with what's out there. And making it really, really horrifying, obviously, but doing that in a way that kind of drives the plot instead of deflating it, I thought was quite a big achievement. Yeah, and it all adds to this. The, the whole story is really in, in a meta style, just just about claustrophobia, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. This sense of things just beyond your vision as well, and how mm. you're hemmed in by everything. And so there are all these little bugs that start, well, big large insects that start landing on the glass because it seems they're attracted to the light. Mm. and every so often something larger comes in and snatches them and eats them and it mm. turns out that these I'll have another crack at it. I mean you should really read the book if you want to see good descriptions of these creatures but uh, for me the the bigger flying creatures are kind of albino pterodactyls um, so we'll go with that <laughs> that was pretty good That was pre- if you're going to go for a horrifying monster go straight to the dinosaurs oh yeah definitely and and the, but the problem is that there must be there must have been some hole created in the glass somewhere because as they're uh, as they're looking through one part of it, David notices that there's a a bag of fertilizers moving from the top of the uh, oh. top of the barricade <laughs> right above poor Tom Smalley who we haven't met yet and I don't think we're going to get to know very well. <laughs> Because uh, it, it, the fertilizer sort of lands on his head and he goes goes down, like knocks him out, mm. and then one of these albino pterodactyls comes through and sort of it seems really stupid. It sort of waddles through, tries to open its wings up but can't. Falls off the um, <laughs> falls off the barricade, lands yeah. on this bloke and just goes, mm, "Oh right, dinner," and then starts eating. Have a him. bit of a munch on that, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's quite good presenting you with something that's totally laughable and totally terrifying at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and it's very hard to do that effectively, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, the, in the end, to, to kill it, uh, they run over with these, uh, these blazers. David runs over with a blazing mop and, uh, and sets it on fire and uh, sort of starts flying around the shop, but sort of in this screaming in agony and then one of the one of the little um cre- one of the little insects crawls through as well mm. and mrs repler who is uh who it turns out is badass grandma uh, this <laughs> yes. little, little, little old lady with the guns of raid runs over and sprays a, a bit of insect repellent in its face <laughs> and kills it oh she and sprays a shitload of it I, yeah, yeah. I I love that sight of it's exactly that badass grandpa the grandma that's amazing because she's like kind of like the kind of grab where she's like okay with small bugs what I do is I raid the shit out of them that's just a big <laughs> bug <laughs> I'm so I'm loaded now <laughs> she finishes doing it you can almost see her kind of spinning the cans around and whacking them in her pockets. <laughs> yeah, I reckon she's gone and got herself a couple of gun holsters from the, uh, yeah. from the fancy dress aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, punk, make my day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they 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 re sort of plug up that gap again as well to to keep anything else out. Uh, but it's obviously not done a great deal for the morale of the group to see someone torn apart by some thing that seems to have dropped out of the, uh, the prehistoric ages. Mm. Uh, the the next bit we see is that uh, there are num- they say there are a number of people who are sort of sitting on their own now, just 
going slightly crazy, just not speaking to anybody or mumbling to themselves and stuff. Mm. And it's this idea that, you know, one or two people now have just given up because of yeah. sort of the weird stuff that's happening. And that would happen, wouldn't it? You'd have some people yeah. who just couldn't deal with it. Yeah, and um, just, just tap out, right? Yeah, and it's, again, these little notes are just, just reminding us of how the pressure just continuously ratchets up on this group. And that is yeah. really the explanation given for the, the strange things that they start doing and already yeah. have started doing. Uh, speaking of strange things, uh, it turns out that uh, <laughs> David's decided that he really fancies Amanda, who's this girl, this woman who had the gun. Um, and he just starts, when he's trying to get to sleep, he, he sort of looks over at her and thinks, hmm, oh yeah. <laughs> and this is weird. And there's a... I think when he first sees her, he says something like, he, he says something like, if, you know, if she was my wife, it wouldn't, um, I wouldn't spend so much time away on business. Uh, I think, I think he might even say, he used the word something about being the, if, if I was the proprietor of that, something like that. And there are these notes with David that he's yeah. a bit, a complete sort of male chauvinist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and um, I know that from a couple of the reviews that I read of this, people had some some people had a real problem with that. They said that he was his sort of attitude towards women. I suppose most of the women in the book aren't portrayed particularly well. They're either a problem or they're pretty pathetic. Yeah. But with the exception of Miss, with the exception of badass grandma, who's yeah. an absolute who's an absolute animal when it comes to <laughs> fending off insects. Um, that there's, there isn't really a strong female character, is there? Is that important to you? And does it really matter in the context of this story? Good question. It's difficult for me to answer that because this is a genre I'm new to. So I mm. don't really do horror generally because I, I generally kind of sit back a bit and go and either expect to be kind of splattered into being horrified or it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I, I find it all quite cheap and manipulative usually, which is why I was so impressed with, like, the quality of the writing in this. In, like, mm. it, it draws horror from what human beings are like, not just by having characters that you don't really bother to sketch and then having some massive fuck-off insects come and try and eat them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's difficult for me to say, is this normal in the genre of horror? I, I don't... I don't really know, like, my kind of antennae was off. Because at a certain point, if you're asking me to believe that, you know, six-foot-wide tentacles are only the start of your problems on your average shopping trip, (laughs) then, you know, I don't know at what point I'm going to be like, okay, but, you know, kind of seriously bring it in and try and pay attention to uh, Jermaine Greer's critique of of the female character as presented in horror fiction. I'm not Mm. saying that's not a question that people could ask. I'm just saying I'm not the right man to ask it. Yeah, I, it's interesting because there are similar issues with, there have been similar issues with uh, the TV series The Walking Dead, which is a horror series. Oh, really? And yeah, the, the, on occasion that's been levelled at it about not having many strong female characters, especially in the early seasons. Mm. And I, I think part of it, part of it is, and I think this is a, is a bit of a problem with The Mist, um, the only defence for it, or one of the defences for it, would be... Uh, this idea that this theme of when society breaks down, naturally the sort of power of uh, uh, of women decreases because a lot of it, a lot of equalities uh, has come out of people becoming more civilized and and society. Yeah, oh, right, up. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And when when you're back to the stage of just fighting for survival, then naturally things like being physically smaller and you know carrying children becomes mm. <laughs> becomes an issue again. Becomes a so, liability. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So so naturally, in when societies break down and when sort of chaos and uh, uh, yeah, when when you completely have a, a lack of of, of civilization again mm. naturally uh that negatively affects women more than men yeah in terms yeah. of in terms of balance of power yeah i think that's true although i think you could definitely make a feminist critique of situations like this that the men who have kind of said okay what i do in this situation is i try and assert authority have really fucked it up so you could yeah. you could argue yeah. that as a story it kind of doesn't present masculine assertiveness as a, a valuable thing for the group or even for the yeah. individual. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you could you could say this this retreats this this retreat of uh, the sort of the the power that women have in these situations only increase the downward spiral because men, men make all the decisions and things get even worse <laughs> because the sort of yeah. macho approach of I will create problems and solve them because this is what makes me a man yeah, exactly doesn't do <laughs> anybody any favors and is indeed downright laughable when you're faced with you know spiders from Mars or whatever yeah uh, okay well we'll uh, we'll we'll park that for now uh, we'll move on to uh, the last little bit of this chapter where he we find out I think this is the first time we find this out that he's actually an artist David oh yeah and yeah. Uh, he think, thinks about how he, he could never his dad was this really famous artist and he never really managed to live up to that yeah uh, and his, his chain of thoughts broken off as Ollie arrives with, with some more bad news which we discover in the next chapter which is which is loosely connected to, I mean, it's described as it's, something about soldiers, something about Amanda, and something about Dan, basically. Yeah. Uh, firstly, the soldiers have all killed themselves. The, the these two teenage, uh, like young soldiers who were in the supermarket at the time, probably from the Arrowhead Project. Remember that, which I'm sure wasn't going to come back up again. And it turns <laughs> the out the mysterious out- military installation. You say <laughs> they weren't yeah. trustworthy. You astonish me. <laughs> it sounds that they've quite quietly gone back into the st- into the storage area and have uh, and have hung themselves. Mm. So um, so that's that, and yeah. it starts this this quiet discussion between Ollie and and David about what may have been going on up there at the Arrowhead Project, and maybe that's what's caused this kind of weird stuff to start happening. Yeah, yeah. and there's a there's a conversation that David remembers having with someone else where they, where they describe what's going on up there. And it's this all of this quote. It says, "Uh, he was told it was not just atoms, but different atoms." <laughs> I couldn't decide whether that was really, really cool, ominous speech, or if it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, they're not just sending atoms up there; they're sending different atoms up there. You know. <laughs> Yeah, are, are they? Atoms is not a scary word to me. But again, actually, this is interesting. This is a mid-80s thing, isn't it? Whereas to yeah, me, so it, you know, the atom and the atom bomb are horrifying but abstractions. I don't think I'm going to get bombed tomorrow. Whereas mm. in the 80s, people did think they were going to get bombed tomorrow. So kind of the atom bomb still had a great deal of power. And the word atom was quite frightening. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The um, <clears throat> This is a, oh, interesting what you think about this. Uh, David then... 
uh, Amanda comes over with a proposition and uh, they both go to sort of the manager's office and have a have a quick screw in the office. Uh, what did you make of that? I it's a B movie in it. Once you start <laughs> once you start critiquing a B movie for having B movie scenes in it, then you might as well just go and watch something else. But I did think this was a bit like what I suppose. <laughs> all right, it presents it presents the kind of how people can change their behaviour under stress and mm-hmm. and all of that. But fundamentally, come on. You've, you've asked me to believe this character for the first third of the story has been driven by his overwhelming concern for his wife and kid. Yeah. And, but then he sees somebody and shags her because why not? Yeah. What? Like, I just, I, I, it didn't make any sense to me at all. But, I mean, yeah, it, 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 I, I suppose, <laughs> I, I suppose I can see the point that you might be trying to make, but for me, it's not a point really worth making. Yeah, it is a bit of a. That struck me as a bit of a bum note. I think you're right. The, 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 what they're going, what he's going for is uh, how people in extreme situations. You don't know you're gonna if you're gonna live through the next day. He mm. he's obviously thinks that his wife's dead at this point, but mm. he obviously isn't sure. And yeah. it's. I mean, she calls out someone else's name at the end, and he thinks that's even because he's thinking of someone else as well. So it's almost like using each other as just yeah. someone to be with. It yeah. was. Um, it was strange. It was. It was. It was definitely strange. I think. I think it would have been worse if he'd have, um, if he'd have tried to seduce her or something like that. Yeah, that was a bit. Weird. Um, that would have been a different kind of character, I suppose. Then, but it's yeah. It 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 felt to me, regardless, like a bit of a bit of a bum note in it. But mm. you know, like you say, it's a B movie kind of story. So yeah, you got to well, give yeah. it that kind of yeah. le- uh, leeway. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'll tell you what, just one little thing on this, though. It made me think of, I didn't really watch very much of Lost, but at one point there was a character in Lost who didn't speak. And mm. um, and he wasn't, as it turned out, spoilers, sorry, of all the spoilers that Lost <laughs> contains, this is not a major one. Um, but he wasn't talking because he was in mourning. And I yeah. found that a much more interesting way of doing a character responding to stress, like increasing their level of fidelity to the things left behind rather mm. than just having them chuck it away. Like that I find a little bit less extraordinary, really, because it's not unusual for characters in fiction to just shag one another for the hell of it. Mm. And so it did. this didn't have the impact that perhaps Stephen King was going for. Um, afterwards, he has this chat with, with Dan Miller. It's Miller time again. He says... Uh, <laughs> You're really happy coming up with that, aren't you? <laughs> I love that, yeah. Well, it's, again, that's back to the thick of it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> d- yeah, Dan's um, Dan's the one person in the group who's a real thinker, isn't he? He's the out- outside-the-box man, if you like. He thought about the barricades up, and now he's thinking a few steps beyond. Everybody seems... Uh, the plan at the moment is just hole up here, wait for help. Mm. And Dan's saying, like, there are two issues here. One is that this place isn't as impregnable as we hope, is it? And hmm. two, that people are starting to get more and more crazy here. And yeah. Mrs. Carmody, it turns out, has got a couple of a couple of women of sort of sitting by, you know, as one as her followers. And yeah. Dan says, you know, she'll have six by tonight, and yeah. it's only going to get worse from that. Yeah. So Dan's idea is to leave, and he's got a. He, he thinks they can make it to a car and get out. Mm. Uh, there's this weird bit where he says that he thinks maybe after a few cars that the rest of the car park may have disappeared or at least sort of 
sloped down now after that massive earthquake. Oh yeah. Uh, so, so so they're not even sure how far they can get away. As far as they know, they could yeah. just be on this this island in the middle of nowhere now. <laughs> I would love it, wouldn't it? If they went and jumped into the car and pulled out and carefully reversed and then just like just ran into like a sort of one meter high like load of gravel and they were like, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That this yeah. did not work out as I planned. Yeah. Uh, so they they decide that so Dan says you know we've got to get out of here, out of here soon, and what they decide to do is go to the pharmacy on a bit of a test run because it's just next door. It's only twenty twenty yard twenty feet away, mm. and um, let's say if we can get there and back, see what the situation is, and it'll give us a a feel for what it's like going out there before we try and make it further away to the car. Yeah, yeah. kind of makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, although it, although I think like. This isn't really the time for the spirit of experimentation, is it? Like, everybody else who's <laughs> yeah. left has died horribly. So the idea of saying, well, if we go out and survive once, then yeah. we'll know that it's safe to go out and try and survive again. Which is a bit like saying, if I jump into the middle of the sun and don't get too bad a sunburn, I'll probably try and do it again. <laughs> no, you won't. Yeah. You'll be burned to a cinder the first time. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> there's one other reason, which is this woman got... Um, trampled in the stampede back at the start and she's mm. broken a leg and they need to get some medication for her so the, there is another reason to go but yeah. also dan says um yeah there are loads of people in the pharmacy when uh, when this when the mist came in they're just next door and uh you know they've no food over there and they've been there for 12 hours now why haven't any of them shown up and mm. there is one obvious reason <laughs> 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 which is just blaringly obvious and that's would would imagine to me would be a great flashing red beacon as to why you shouldn't go over there if no one's come over yeah um but i suppose he says you know they, they could be in trouble they could need some kind of help but what kind mm. of help can they offer mm-hmm. they're only just managing to survive themselves mm-hmm. but anyway we move on to the chapter called what happened at the pharmacy uh bill the uh david's child doesn't want them to go obviously uh, amanda actually comes over and and calls David out and says that this is just macho bullshit and you know why yeah. would you risk yourself for what essentially is a couple of comics and some medication for a broken leg I was bang alongside uh, on that one by the way yeah 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 uh, but that's you know those pleas fall on deaf ears and seven of them decide to go out including of course badass grandma Mrs. Repler who's, got, <laughs> who's now got a shopping basket full of raid <laughs> <laughs> she's doubled down on the raid she's using that <laughs> uh, and Miss, Mrs. Carmody shouts that it's doom outside and you'll all die if you go out Amanda shuts her does. up, her up. Yeah. I, Amanda throws a kind of peas at her to shut her up I loved that oh I absolutely <laughs> loved that just um, the way it's described as well was absolutely priceless like you're going out it'll be death out there it'll be kapoomph I just had this wonderful image of like just a can of beans flying out of nowhere and hitting it, not doing any damage at all, but just being the equivalent of somebody just rolling their eyes and going, "Oh, for fuck's sake, just shut up!" Would you? <laughs> yeah, In some ways, yeah. much more powerful than like 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 you know tying her up with uh, with duct tape around her mouth or something would be. You know that would be yeah. violent, but just going, "Fuck off!" Would you please? <laughs> Especially as Carmody at this point is kind of arguing on the same side as Amanda because she's telling him not to go out as well. But it's just the way she's doing yeah, it. And well, she's telling him not cr- to go out because she wants more people to be in her crazy congregation of canaries. Mm. Yeah. So it does remind me of actually the, that this bit where they keep 
hitting her and throwing stuff at her yeah. is um did, have you seen the first Black Adder series? Yeah. There's a bit where there's like uh I think it's the the one where he becomes an archbishop and whenever yeah. they they mention the word hell, this guy comes and he goes, Hell would tend and he goes into this like long spiel <laughs> every time someone shuts him up by like, violence. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> He can't yeah, go out there, it's doom. Yes, doom. Doom. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I hadn't anyway. seen that parallel, but that makes the Mrs. Carmody character even more enjoyable for me. Yeah. I, so, sorry, if we, we seem to be constantly doing references to obscure, well, semi-obscure British uh, TV comedy. If you live outside of the UK, you probably don't get any of it, but... For well, that, I apologise. Very, no, I'm not apologising. It's fantastic. Watch everything that we talk <laughs> about. It's all great. <laughs> Actually, that's true. It has to be fairly funny to make it into a rolling roster of really stupid cultural kind of references that we make, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so we move on to the, this ex- expedition to the pharmacy. Mm. It's just it's just twenty feet, but the, the mist is so thick that you can hardly see the person in front of you when you head out, and you really get a sense of just how claustrophobic this is when you're out doing that. You know, you you you, you can't see more than like the length of your arm away. So if anything comes out, you, you're not really going to stand a chance. It must be terrifying. Mm. Um, <clears throat> they reach they reach the pharmacy and they're greeted by a scene of just carnage and destruction. Rather predictably, everyone's dead here. And there's this, uh, there's even this guy who looks like he's got a maroon t-shirt on. It turns out it's a white t-shirt and it's just covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And they can't work out. He, David can't work out what's wrong with him at first until he realizes he's got no head. And it's just because his mind didn't realize because it's just yeah. so strange. Didn't process that. To see. Yeah. yeah. The the my mind simply couldn't process the horror I was seeing. Line has been a mainstay for horror writers for many years, and and it works mm-hmm. here. You know, yeah. it really yeah. makes you. It really makes you feel the horror. The horror. You know, horror with a capital H. Yeah. Uh, the he, he looks around. It looks like there are streamers all over the pharmacy, and he's trying to work out what on earth have been going on. And then he realizes that it's not streamers; it's spider webs. I, I laughed aloud, honestly, when he said, and then I realised it wasn't streamers at all. It was spider webs. And I had been thinking that it was going to be, it wasn't streamers at all. It was human intestines. And I was already for that. And and then it was like spider webs. And I was like, Steve, you've written a 150 page spider fear story. Right on, mate. Fair play. Ballsy, that. <laughs> Yeah, well, by the end of this chapter, I was fearing spiders too because this attack is horrendous. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, it starts off with these... It appears that the spiders can sort of fire these um, these this web out at people because there's this whip crack as, uh, mm. as these these bits of uh, web come, come crack, cracking out of the mist. Uh, one of them goes around this guy called Buddy. It's not the store manager is this other guy mm. um it goes around his leg and effectively cuts his leg off um and this guy do you know the gym they got one of the guys who sent the bag boy out yeah he makes a he makes a run for it and gets killed by something out in the mist you hear him screaming mm. uh this other guy called mike hatlin who's i think he was a town councillor mm. uh he gets killed Oh, and then this is before you've even seen the spiders. This is just with the webs that keep coming out, and then the spiders come come out of the mist, and they're about the size of dogs. And uh, Ollie, Ollie shoots one of them, 
and for a guy who's had a few drinks, he's a dead eye. He shoots it one shot, one kill. <laughs> and and I love how badass grandma, Mrs. Rappler, just keeps shouting where where one appears and then oh, firing raid at it. Isn't it? It's like she's <laughs> yeah. read an adventure story in the thirties and she remembers it really clearly and she's like, Yes, I get to do it, I get to Where there? Where over there? <laughs> Beware, be careful. Yeah. Oh shit, there's one of them. None of that. No, no, no. <laughs> if it's not classical language, it's no language at all for Mrs. Rappler. Yeah. So she I mean she's got a tennis racket which um which she loses to one of the webs, and she sprays a few other things. There. She's just she is the one who handles herself with Ollie the best here, I suppose. Um, I, I would love to see this made as a film. I think maybe it was, but I, if it was, it wasn't made with a middle-aged woman in the starring action role, and I think that is a crying <laughs> shame. It is a film. It was made as a film a, a couple of years ago. I remember it going was, and seeing it. It's really modern. Is it, is it any um, good as a film? Does it do justice to it? Uh, yeah, I thought it was good. It, it's uh, it's got a different ending, which we'll come on to at the end. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember what the Mrs. Rappler character was like actually. Now, yeah. now I think about it, it was a few years ago when I saw it. But uh, yeah, it's fairly faithful to the book because obviously mm-hmm. that's the good thing about short stories that you can normally get almost all of it into a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that so they make this retreat back to the back to the supermarket and poor old Dan Miller um, is killed. A spider grabs him. And uh, and sort of spins him into his web, and uh, and that's the end of that for him. Mm. And there's this desperate race back to the market, and only uh, David, Ollie, and of course badass grandma Mrs. Rappler make it back. So seven have gone out and three have returned, and uh, yeah, it's obviously that, not a that not good odds. Kind of shits people up a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we run to the the next chapter, which is the second night, and this guy comes over with I think the greatest name in the book, and he he appeared earlier on, and I forgot to mention him, which is when they were talking about guns, he said that he had a shotgun in his trunk, um, out in the car out in the car park, and he'd mm. make a run for it if he wanted him to. Yeah. And this and they said no, don't bother. And this guy is a grizzled old, uh, almost like a New England version of a cowboy, and he's called Ambrose Cornell. Which yes, my <laughs> name's Ambrose Cornell. Yeah, straight out of a western. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Road up in the town. But, Ambrose uh, yeah. <laughs> and Ambrose says that uh, he wants to get out of here now. Uh, it's a similar thing to what Dan said, but he's saying the Mrs. Carmody stuff's getting out of hand. And that that guy called Myron, who used to be, you know, he's the, one of the, the other guy who sent the bag boy out before. Yeah, yeah. Is now one of Mrs. Carmody's followers, and mm. apparently, uh, when Mrs. Carmody, at, at sort of an earlier point in the night, started shouting her doom and gloom again, Bud Brown, the manager, told her to shut up, and Myron sort of started fighting with him, and this is what <laughs> Ambrose doesn't like. In glory there, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, just just pinging but, from one death cult to another. Yeah, but and also the the butcher who this big sort of strong bloke who was sticking on all the barbecue last night he's now following her as well yeah. and it's this danger that it, it's all well and good when you've got this loony shouting and you don't want people to get upset so that's a problem but when she gets a couple of sort of heavy muscly followers who are going to enforce what she's saying then things are getting really scary yeah 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 very true and um i like the way they describe her kind of ongoing jeremiah which lasts all night basically where she's yelling and stomping and 
And I can't really picture the character who actually does this. Like, I see it happen, and I understand why it happens, and it's great in the story. Lots of tension, and I was really on the edge of my seat at this point. But there's still a bit like... This is an elderly woman whose previous major exertion has been standing around in her creepy, poorly lit shop of antiquities talking about how her grandfather killed that stuffed wolf over there. (laughs) Now suddenly becomes Fidel Castro or like an old school revival, big tent revival preacher who can go on for five hours at a time. It's weird. I'm not certain I'd buy it unless she really is buoyed up from within by she's genuinely convinced that the world is ending and that the appropriate response to that is to talk about it at great length really loudly without stopping. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like she's got some kind of almost religious fervour here, isn't it? It's like this is what she was born to do and she's finally Yeah, she just loves the notion of death coming on this kind of a scale. Yeah, you know, it's I like mean, and, and actually, life. you know what? Now we're talking about it, I can kind of see that as a character thing, you know, because like, if you are minded to go looking for apocalypses around every corner, then hmm. imagine putting the kind of person who, in the real world, where this sort of thing doesn't happen, imagine putting somebody with that kind of mindset into a story where it, it is genuinely happening right in front of them. Um, yeah, you know, and I think that's a really interesting kind of little thing to to play with here. Actually. I think she's a really good character. Well, she's certainly pushing people out of the door here because they decide, David and Ambrose Connell and a number of other people decide to make a break for it the following morning. So Ollie puts a few uh, shopping bags full of supplies to one side mm. and it's basically it's going to be Amanda, uh, Hattie Terman, who's the uh, the babysitter, Mrs. Repler, obviously Bardas Grandma's coming, uh, Ambrose <laughs> Connell, uh, Ollie, Billy... Uh, da- uh, David, obviously, and this guy Bud Brown. But in the end, when they offer, when they ask Bud if he wants to come, he says he, he's going to stay in his shop. Mm. So uh, they try to make it out. They try to leave, and as they as they sort of making their quiet exit, Mrs. Carmody notices, and yeah. she tries to stop them. Yeah. And she actually says, uh, "Now's the time for a blood sacrifice." God, and she of says, "It is Mrs. C, isn't it? Of course, yeah. it is." So she, oh, you're doing so something she, I don't want you to do. How about I set my newly lobotomized pack of terrified human beings on you? Kill them. Yeah. So, so she she sets. That's exactly what she does. She says, "Get the boy and get his get the uh, get his whore too," because she obviously noticed when uh, when David and Amanda <laughs> slipped off. She, of course, she did. She's such a. You imagine. She well, she's the character who, if she didn't she's do the that, busybody. she's kind of letting you down as the. I'm not certain if it's realistic busybody so much as it is kind of realistic bogeyman. You know, she's the <laughs> she's the antagonist in this story. Um, yeah. But I did like how this scene, how it all goes down, really, really gives the lie to her kind of moral right self righteousness. You know how yeah. it kind of it, it you know in quite uh, not very many brushstrokes really painted this character of Mrs. Carmody, with who's clearly powered by this sense of self righteousness, and then just showing it to be completely bankrupt by the end of it. You know, kill yeah. his whore, kill his kid. Why not? You know uh, what? Yeah. And there's no good reason, and there doesn't have to be because the you know the point of it is that she's a psycho. Yeah, and she also grabs the bags of supplies and uh, like <laughs> rips them up as well. Not going which, away which, with in- my food. Yeah, which says. in some ways I thought it, like, that really pissed me off I was like oh they really need the supplies yeah. <laughs> <Fucking hell. laughs> you know what human sacrifice you know let's agree to disagree but don't fuck with the nibbles <laughs> yeah 
Um, but this all comes to a head, and uh, Ollie shoots her, uh, and he's a bit shocked at himself as yeah. he does it. Yeah. But um, I suppose this is this is the only thing that he can do at this point, or is it? Do you think he needs to kill her here? Well, I think one of the fantastic one of the one of the best things about this story, if not the best, is that it makes you complicit in wanting this woman to be dead. And the reason that you want her to be dead is that she wants other people to be dead. And it kind mm. of, it, it, you know, it presents you with this really, actually, ironically, for saying that she's such a caricature and that there are tentacle beings knocking at the door outside and stuff, it presents you with an extremely realistic human moral dilemma, which is about whether or not the people you hate deserve to die. And cheaper yeah. stories than this just make you want somebody to be dead and then they kill them and they present that as an unambiguously good thing. And mm. kind of so does this, but I think you don't have to be very switched on to read this and be like, yeah, killer, wait, what? And yeah. you kind of realise yeah. that there's not such an enormous difference between you and the credulous morons that you've been angry at for being willing to kill anybody just because this woman says so. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Fa- I thought it was really, really great little, little, little narrative theme, little chord there. Nothing big. It's not what the story's about, but I think it makes a story, a B movie story like this, richer. And I love it when people do that. Hmm. Yeah, and you could say that him killing her has given everybody else in the in the store a better chance now. But at the same time, uh, is another yeah. one going to just pop up who's going to start spouting crazy stuff as well? Yeah, well, know. exactly. And now, and now, you know, we've broken blood, if you like. You know, somebody's mm. died. Much easier to yeah. do it the second time. Yeah. So the final chapter's called The End, and uh, they make a break for the car. And poor Ollie, who's been the sort of rock all the way through this, he gets as far as the car, opens the doors. There's this set, set plan that they're going to go through, and he starts carrying it out. And then something comes out of the mist and practically, it says something comes out of the mist and practically cuts him in half. Yeah. And it's this weird sort of scorpion thing. Yeah. And that was a bit of, that was a body blow that he, because he was probably one of the better characters, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, down he goes. Uh, Hattie, the babysitter, gets caught by one of the spiders. Mm. Uh, Am- Ambrose Cannell uh, retreats back to, he realises he's not going to make it and retreats back to the supermarket. Mm. And, the rest make it to the car. So it's uh, Amanda, David, Billy, and, of course, Balas Grandma, Mrs. Repler, <laughs> who who was always going to survive, wasn't she? She was. <laughs> she was. She had to. <laughs> She's, uh, she, she, she needs to get herself over to Cuba and find herself uh, the old man from the old man in the sea because they're uh, <laughs> meant to be together, Santiago oh, and Repler. Can you imagine? Santiago <laughs> and Repler. That's a... That's a Brilliant. That's a daytime TV detective series, if ever I heard one. One of them, a grizzled Cuban fisherman. The other one, a bug spray obsessed woman from Connecticut. You don't even know how badass. It's the badass grandparents. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Anyway, yeah, they, they, they're the four who make it to the car. Um, and uh, David also leans out, of the, like they all get in and uh, they look safe. And then David actually opens the door again and leans out and grabs the gun, um, yeah. which Ollie's dropped, yeah. uh, which has got three bullets in it. And he thinks, well, if worst comes to worst, I can always find some way of offing myself, which doesn't involve a gun. So that's pretty yeah. bleak. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the 
I mean, I've had this myself to a small, much, much smaller degree. <laughs> I didn't know you get in caught by a load of uh, tentacled monsters in a car, Matt. <laughs> no, but you get in, you sit down, and you think you're about to switch to start the engine, and you think, oh shit, where are my keys? <laughs> and <laughs> I it's love that turned up to 11, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could, could you imagine having to turn to the other three people in the car and say, so I've left the keys in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> I left them I left them on the night table, you know, like I do, by the side, by my belt and the other things that I take off. I'm sorry, all right? I was an autopilot. It's been a very stressful day. <laughs> but uh, luckily for him um, and for the sanity of all involved, he, he does have them and he starts mm. the car. The car starts. And uh, and they they leave and they drive past the supermarket and they see these fa- these sort of bleak faces staring out at them. Uh, they they drive the three blocks back to the house, mm. but uh, they can't they can't get to the uh, they can't actually get up the road because this massive tree's fallen over blocking it. Mm. So he's never going to know whether his wife's still alive. There's no way he can get up there because you obviously yeah. can't walk around her through the mist. Yeah. And he says, you know, hopefully, maybe she got in and managed to sort of move quickly enough. But he knows it's a bit of a fool's hope. There's no yeah. way she's survived. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all this time during the drive, they don't see any other survivors. It's just these weird prehistoric monsters wandering around. At one yeah. point, there's this massive thing that wanders across the road. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of one he, th- he thinks it's a tree at first and he finds out he realizes it's just the leg of this massive creature terrifying uh yeah yeah so there's that and then they eventually get to this sort of service station where this is where the story ends mm. and he's saying that he's you know he's hoping to to drive a bit further they've not got much much fuel left and they're, they're going to try and find a way of siphoning off gas but that will mean standing outside the car for a while and he doesn't realize he doesn't think that's going to be really possible and he, but he does say that there's one one little bit of hope which mm. is he he saw this well he thinks he heard something on the radio all the radios out obviously apart from there was one word he thought he heard which was hartford and he yeah. thinks there might be someone out there because the thing is the big fear more than sort of trying to get somewhere and whether they'll make it far enough to outrun the mist is that if the is is this mist ever going to end or is just the entire planet covered in this stuff now yeah 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 and, yeah and um, that's that that's the bleak sort of conclusion and and worry that we're left with at the end yeah i think you've got if you're writing a, ho- a a horror short story you've got to leave it there haven't you you can't have a sense of resolution that's just not what it's for at all um, but I did think that maybe this I mean this is really well executed but there's a bit of me that kind of wanted it to be about something bigger than that as well you know mm. I wanted the the you know where have these things come from is the government really that stupid what happened you know I want all of that even if it's not going to happen mm, yeah well that and that, that's where it so yeah it's a bit of a Hitchcockian sort of end where you create your own you can create your own conclusion really it's left a bit open mm. um, the interesting thing is with the uh, comparing it to the book, comparing it to the film, if you haven't seen the film, just just flick forward a couple of minutes now because I'm just going to spoil the ending. Right. The ending's, dif- the in- ending's different to the book. Do you want to be spoiled? Yeah, you know, no, that's fine. So, so the ending's different to the book in that um, in the book, they drive so far and the fuel runs out. Yeah. So the car stops and they're just st- stopped on the road surrounded by this mist. Yeah. And there were four survivors. 
yeah. and he, David ends up um, killing all the other people in the car. Um, it's like sort of a suicide pact kind of thing. And then when it comes to him, he's not got any, he's no bullet. Uh, the 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 gun's empty. Yeah. So he gets out to uh, sort of just think like oh, this is it. And as he gets out, these uh, like army tanks roll past and stuff, and Ooh. they get saved. Oh, <laughs> that's is, I mean, fucking it's, cold. He's just killed his like young son, and oh. uh, yeah, and then they get. So it's a. I mean, I'm not sure which one I prefer. I think I prefer this one because I like it. I like an ambiguous ending sometimes. But that yeah. was a a real. Sh- especially because I'd read the book, yeah. and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't well, remember this. <laughs> ambiguous endings is interesting. In books, I think they work. I think in movies, they really, really piss people off. Yeah, um, I think I think you're just trying to sell a sequel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or. Um, Unless it's Inception. Unless you've screwed with people's perceptions so much that you can screw them one last time and have them go, oh, that was pretty good. Almost every other film that tries to do that, you end up walking out going, you motherfuckers. You don't watch it. You don't watch the sequel. That's for damn sure. <laughs> right. Shall we move on to some reviews? We're Let's have a look at long as it is. So, okay. Yeah. So, uh, we do this every time. Once we get to the end of a book, we don't, we, we have an opinion, obviously. But <laughs> also we like to... Uh, we like to bring you the opinion of uh, of others too. So these are some of the greatest reviews from the finest parts of the internet. We've got a, it's quite mixed this uh, this book. I'd say on the whole it's very positive. I'd say it's between sort of it's probably settles in the four star range as, of people's ratings overall. All right, all right. Um, so uh, Obi gave it three stars. Oh yeah. And he says, uh, the protagonist was even more annoying when the story is told from his perspective. I don't really understand that. Uh, mm. The idea that people will listen to anyone providing a clear answer in up ten times is interesting, though, and King plays on it well. Yeah. What do you reckon about that? I reckon that's true. Um, like you, I'm not sure about the first bit, but I think that, the, yeah, I like it. one of the things that elevates it above just being like, oh, there's monsters in the mist, that's some freaky shit. <laughs> you know, that elevates it above being that, which it also is, um, is, the, is this whole thing about like how human beings cope with like trauma and stress and how, you know, it's horrifyingly easy for human beings to go along with horrific acts just because they want a sense of certainty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of four starers. Uh, one, uh, Dave, not you, but another Dave, uh, says. <laughs> thanks, thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> did, did I write a review of this? <laughs> nope. Uh, yeah, Dave says, one hell of a creepy story. Read it on a foggy night. Mm. <laughs> now, that I don't understand. I don't have the bit in my head where I'm like, kind of, oh yeah, horror stories. Yeah, they really shit you up. That's an experience I'll seek out. So I don't have the thing where I'm like, oh yeah, definitely, yeah, something that's going to make me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, in, in a sunny day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that would be it. I'm such a wuss. Read it on a sunny day with really upbeat music playing over massive speakers behind your chair. <laughs> uh, Mark gave it four stars, and he says uh, the story ra- uh, really ages remarkably well, considering that it's almost thirty years old. The human interaction is really much scarier than the monsters that go bump in the night. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, absolutely again, true. A similar point to what you made. Yeah, yeah, and it is, isn't it? That's is, that's what makes this story really interesting. Is that mm. how how people react to those kind of horrific monsters rather than the monsters themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, a few five star reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, Man- uh, Mandy. 
five stars, says, uh, Stephen King's ability to scare people isn't because he thinks of horrible, creepy things, even though he's really good at that. He's famous because he understands people and their natural reactions to fear, and he can describe it in a way that makes it seem completely plausible and possible. Which yeah. I thought was a, a good summary of that sort of... It, it's this Again, it's the reaction. It's not the, it's not the actual monster. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Ding... Giving it five stars. Yeah. Just that it was just a one line review. Five stars, so I assume he enjoyed it. But his one line review is I'm still unbelievably pissed off at that church lady. Exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> I assume he means Mrs. Carmody. I was going to say that. <laughs> Although, I, while it's not difficult to draw the parallel there, I would like to speak against that woman being church rather than just being <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I kind of wish Mrs. Reppel was like a Bible quote in Badass Grandma. Yeah, you kind of want that to English? balance out the experience, don't you? I think that would be much better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Lily. Lily gave it five stars, but she does have one criticism. She says, I'm never disappointed by Stephen King. Drives forward a truly page-turning plot um, with also fitting in bigger messages about what the mist really is. Something internal yet unimaginable, something we've chosen to ignore, but now must come to swallow us whole. Uh, the o- my only minor issue with it is uh, he's his protagonist is a, is the way he positions his protagonist in a male perspective. Uh, when does his wife Amanda and Mrs. Carmody ever have a say in the book without being dismissed or ridiculed? Just something to think about. Uh, I don't think Amanda's dismissed or ridiculed at any point. She's treated like mm. a cheap sex toy. But she's not dismissed or ridiculed as such. Um, mm. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like we say, I think that's a fair point. I'm not certain. I'm not a fan of kind of trying to find ways in which particular gender perspectives or any perspective can be put into a story where they may not necessarily make sense. Um, mm. So I'm not saying he should change it, but I am saying that you can't really argue with that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what a couple of one star reviews there weren't many actually so mm. i've had to it's fairly slim pickings but there's a <laughs> rachel this is an interesting one rachel said so lame cloud full of dinosaurs so lame <laughs> and i i'd reply to that with cloud full of dinosaurs what's not to love <laughs> yeah, well exactly exactly <laughs> cloud full of dinosaurs <laughs> You say that as though it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's never a bad thing. Cloud a story full about of dinosaurs. Full of dinosaurs. In fact, there's a sequence not unlike this in the Jurassic Park book, where um, which isn't in the <laughs> film, where they're where the raptors attack them out of the mist. And oh, actually, yeah, you're that, right. Yeah. That shit me right up. That's a great yeah. premise. Dinosaurs in the mist. I'm going to write that. Yeah, I've yet to I've yet to read a, a story which involves a cloud full of dinosaurs, which has been anything less than great. But anyway, <laughs> limited field, but on the data we've got so far, yeah. Uh, Shane says, uh, "One star, you have got to be kidding me! That is what was in the mist. I knew there was a reason why I never read Stephen King. This is just dumb. Not finishing it." I think he he got to the point where it was a spider web, and I laughed, and he clearly threw the book across the room. I, I can't work out what it is he got upset because the first thing you see from the mist is massive tentacles of doom, which I yeah. think are pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and then 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 there's the sort of little massive mosquito things, which I mm. suppose are, are less interesting. Then albino pterodactyls, and then the spiders. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't, and then at the end, this huge colossus thing with the little mosquito things all over it. Like, can't yeah. argue with that, really, can you? <laughs> well. 
You oh. can if you Shane. You can if you Shane. And uh, the <laughs> the final uh, review is uh, I haven't I haven't got their name, so it's going to be a, a not, name withheld. Uh, name and address withheld. Name and uh, address says, withheld. <laughs> uh, the mist is a great read from start to finish. The monsters all sound horrifying, but the people themselves are even scarier. And that's that. What about yours, Dave? What's your overall review of it? As the very opposite of a horror aficionado, I was impressed. I think there's enough horror stories which are about kind of creepy shit all by themselves and when I read creepy shit I'm unimpressed because I'm like well that's just creepy shit isn't it it doesn't make me buy the premise and I didn't buy the premise in this one either Mistful of Monsters yeah right on but I did buy the characters and I absolutely bought the characters they were very very realistic and all good horror it seems to me has to be about what human beings are like there's more than enough horror in the world without inventing some and that's Mm. what ties in this, this kind of particular fantastic horror um, into into a place where I was reading it and kind of going along with it as a reader. I thought it was really very, very good and extremely well written, and I'm impressed. Excellent. Well, that's it for us for this week. Obviously, it's just a one-off this with the, uh, the Mist, so if you've got any comments on it that you want to feed back to us about it, then uh, it'd still be great to hear from you. Just uh, email sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com or we're on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. Uh, but obviously, we won't be able to read them out on the podcast, but we'll, we'll, we'll re- respond to them uh, in person. The other thing is, if you want to get in any early uh, quotes or any early reviews of... Uh, the classic A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, which is what we'll be looking at next week, then then send those in. Uh, we've had a couple already sent through as well of these uh, suggestions for uh, retellings of A Christmas Carol, uh, either in film, on television, or in, in book form. Because what we're going to do is we're going to do a two-part thing on uh, A Christmas Carol. So next week you'll hear our first part of the read-through of that, and then the week after our second. And then for the Christmas week, we're going to do... A slightly different podcast which looks at the different retellings of a christmas carol which should be a lot of fun because there's some really good ones yeah and yeah. uh <laughs> there's one that we've already been sent in which is <laughs> i watched a bit of it yesterday and it's the funniest thing i've ever seen so um <laughs> it, it, unintentionally as well <laughs> excellent yeah okay so uh yeah if you want to get any any of your own suggestions for retellings of a christmas carol in it's shark live royal podcast at gmail.com shark live royal podcast at gmail.com or we are on twitter at shark live royal and that's that dave that's that matt the christmas run-up begins here excellent i'll uh, i'll get the um the bells out to put behind the theme music yeah and don't forget to open your advent calendar of course not <laughs>